Good morning. <clears throat> Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 7. We have been preaching through Luke, one verse at a time, and we're up to chapter 7 now. I was just as surprised as my son at the appearance of a Carlene in our midst, having only met one in my life. Uh, what was it? 1966. So when was 34? 40, uh, 46 years ago. <clears throat> we weren't married 46 years ago, though. They've got, they've got us by several years. Okay, we're going to look at the, uh, the centurion this morning. Wonderful uh, little gem from the word of God here, beginning in verse 1. Now, when he concluded all his sayings, that is Jesus, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. Wow. <clears throat> okay, when Jesus sits up and takes notice, we should do the same thing. And it says here in verse 9 that when Jesus heard what this guy said, he marveled at it. Jesus marveled. He doesn't do that very often. Okay? So we should really pay attention here. And so we're going to see uh, three lessons for us this morning. They will be three necessary qualities when approaching Jesus. Now, I'm speaking mainly to the believers here this morning. That is, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But uh, if you don't know Jesus, we're going to talk to you in a moment also. So there's something here for everyone. Uh, so we'll begin just real quick on the background. You know, when I read something like this, I don't want to just be kind of out there in a vacuum, kind of get a feel for what's going on, where we are, you know, who, who these people are and stuff. So it began, it says that uh, when Jesus had finished all of his sayings, well, what sayings were those? Well, they're the ones back in chapter six that Don had just finished going over. By the way, uh, it is not the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you look at your parallel Bible, you're going to see that uh, people think that the stuff Jesus said on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 6 is the same as here in Luke chapter 6. But they're not. They're different. And in fact, back in 
uh, Matthew, it says very plainly that uh, he went up on a mountain and taught. And if you'll notice, back in verse 17 of chapter 6, it says, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd. It's not a mountain. So, you might call that the Sermon on the Plain. He just finished the Sermon on the Plain. And uh, it says he went to Capernaum. Okay, so let's just get an idea. Sea of Galilee's up here at the top of Israel, right? Yeah, people, most people know that. So Capernaum's up here on the top of the Sea of Galilee. Okay? So that's where we are. The province of Galilee where Jesus grew up is right there in the same area. Okay, so this guy's a centurion. Everybody's heard of centurions before. If nothing else, you know them from Hollywood, right? Sure, centurion, you know, he's a Roman soldier, he's a commander. Now, we're mistaken when we think that since he's a centurion and century means a hundred years, therefore a centurion commands how many men? Wrong. He commands anywhere from about 80 to 200. It depends on who organized the legion that the, that the uh, group of men is in, okay? So it's a lot of guys, though. The point is... This guy's no slouch. He's not a grunt. He's, he's not just a foot soldier. He's, a, he's an officer. Okay? Um, but at the same time, let's think about it now. This guy is a, a foreigner. He's an invader. You think he's a popular guy here in Israel? No. That's right. The, the Jews resented, obviously, the presence of the Roman army in their country. And this guy is one of them. And so he's kind of obnoxious. All of the Roman soldiers, they hated him. You know, it was a reminder that they'd been conquered. But now this guy seems to be one of the more sensitive guys. You, you can Most of the guys, you know, Romans come in, they look down on the local people. You know, we've conquered you. That's just too bad. You know, we're here to stay. But this guy seems to be a little, a little different, a little more compassionate. But nevertheless, generally, he's sensitive to the fact that he's an outsider. Okay, that's why he's going to send Jews to Jesus instead of going himself. Okay. Okay. Uh, interesting, by the way, that uh, there are actually, I think, four centurions mentioned in the Bible. It's very interesting. And in every case, they're put in, portrayed in a good light. You ever thought about that? We got this guy, Cornelius, right, in Acts 10. He's a centurion. He's a good guy. Uh, we have the centurion at the foot of the cross where Jesus was crucified. Remember what he said? Surely what? This was the Son of God. What a testimony. Centurion said that. And then later when Paul gets shipwrecked, the guy that's taking him to Rome is the centurion. And, and it says in the scripture that he treated Paul kindly. So uh, we have some pretty uh, good guys represented generally in the scripture. Well, finally, we have the servant. And uh, it's wonderful, it says here, that the servant uh, was dear to him. Isn't that a nice little touch? You know, normally God doesn't say things like that. But he tells us that to let us know what kind of a guy the centurion is. He really cares about his servant. And uh, as he says, it says here that he's sick and ready to die. Wow. So, I mean, he's on his deathbed. Clearly, the servant appears to have accepted the fact he's about to die. You know, the centurion is sad and he knows he's about to die. I mean, we're, we're right at death's door here. We don't know what the sickness is, but it's fatal. 
And then it's wonderful. It says, so when he heard about Jesus. So the centurion hadn't gone out and seen any healings. Somehow, probably the local Jews had told him about Jesus. And he didn't need a lot of persuading. You know, I would have pictured a lot of skepticism, you know, particularly since he'd never seen it. Yeah, right. He healed somebody. Sure. You know, but no, Uh, it says when he heard about him, he sent elders of the Jews to him right away. Not wasting any time. Okay, well, uh, so here's our first quality that we're going to learn from in this guy. And that's his earnestness. His earn- He's serious when he's seeking out Jesus. He means business. Okay? Too often, people take spiritual things as kind of, you know, well, I can get around to it when I feel like it, you know? And even as believers, we can get kind of lackadaisical about uh, spiritual things. This guy's not like that. He means business. Um, it's interesting in verse 3, it says, he ple- pleading with him to come and heal his servant. He sent elders of the Jews to go get Jesus. And it says, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Well, he didn't go, but it says he pleaded with Jesus. So he was pleading through these elders that he sent. You, you understand that? So you kind of get the picture of when he finds out that Jesus could heal his servant. He, since Jesus is there, he pleads with them. You know, oh, please, you know, do whatever it takes to get this man to come. I want my servant back. Whatever it takes. Please make sure when you come back, you have Jesus with you. And you can just picture him. He's earnest. He, he's serious about this. He, he has a sense of urgency about it. Pleading with him. You know, this guy could have been proud. You know, kind of like a name in the leper in the Old Testament. When uh, the Jew told him, you know, we have a... Uh, a prophet down there, he could heal you, you know, and, and uh, there's a river there that uh, you could go and wash it and, and maybe uh, get cleansed. And Naaman said, well, why do I go down there? You know, uh, when Elijah sent him, uh, we got better rivers up here. You know, the dinky Jordan. You ever seen a picture of the Jordan, by the way? It's, it's not any wider than this room. Okay. Little, little tiny river. He was proud, you know. He, this guy could have been the same way, but he, but he wasn't. So he sends for Jesus. Uh, I love this, by the way, uh, because we're going to have a, a, a picture of a verse that's come up several times here at the chapel, particularly in the class, for example, in 2 Corinthians. We're going to see it in a minute. Because the guys that he sends to go fetch Jesus are ambassadors, aren't they? Yeah, they're representing him. He'd like to go there personally. Put yourself in his shoes. Wouldn't you rather go there personally and let Jesus know, look, I need you badly. Please come and express to him. See his face. Watch his reaction. But instead, he's got to sit back at home and trust that these guys are going to do it right. Do we normally like to do that? Delegation is often hard, isn't it? You know? What's, what's the old commercial I used to see when I was a kid? Mother, please, I'd rather do it myself. Remember that one? 
And I, I have no doubt that's the way he would much rather have done. But he has to entrust the, the pleading and the sense of urgency to the guys that he's sending. No wonder he, he pleaded through them. You see, he wants them to understand. Listen, this is the way I want you to be with Jesus. Don't give up. Bring him to me. Well, they were good ambassadors. Praise the Lord. Look at verse four. And when they came to Jesus, listen to this. They begged him. How? Earnestly. There's that word. You see, I'm glad they were good ambassadors. In fact, it's as if does this sound familiar. It's as if then the centurion were pleading through them. Does that remind you of a verse? We've been talking about it uh, in, the, in the morning class and uh, later. Now that we are ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, as though God were pleading through us. We beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What a beautiful verse. That verse is saying to you and me, brother and sister, that like these Jews, we're going in place of someone else who wants to plead with someone. Who's, who does Jesus want to plead with in this case? It's people that don't know him. Unbelievers. And the, you should ask yourself, and I should ask myself a question. How would Jesus plead with someone to come to him? You think he'd be, be earnest about it? <laughs> yeah. Sincere? Sense of urgency? We implore you or we beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's the way he wants us to approach people without him. Man, that's, that's a heavy responsibility, huh? But it makes sense. He doesn't want us to be ho-hum about it. I'm the first to confess. I remember when I was a baby Christian, sharing the gospel with someone, and I was brand new in the Lord. It was sharing facts, you know, with someone, and they didn't make a lot of sense probably. A verse here and a verse there. You know, I was just young in the Lord. I really didn't know how to present it in a clear way, how to be saved. It was confusing. Now, what exactly does God mean in that passage? We are uh, pleading with other people as though God were pleading through us. And I think the first thing that comes to our mind is, well, we recognize the destiny they're going to without Christ. And there's an urgency there. You know, we don't want to see them end up in hell. And that's certainly true. But I think there's a deeper element and I'm speaking from experience on this in my own life, in, in growing up in the Lord and getting a little older. First of all, uh, I think there's a, an error that's often made for this verse. I know people, uh, well-meaning, who say, now don't let them go unless you press the claims of Christ upon them. Now that's good. But I've seen that pushed to such an extent that people won't, they will give up, you know, they'll keep hammering and hammering and hammering well past the point to where the person has been interested. And they literally push people away from Jesus because of their high pressure tactics. Listen, you can't work past where the Holy Spirit is working. 
And I, not too long ago, I just had someone. You know, I would have longed to have this guy. You know, what must I do to be saved? But he wasn't there. He was way away from that. Just barely even seeking God if he was even doing that. And it would have been me, Rick, all by himself out there, you know, pressing the claims of Christ on him. He wasn't even ready to hear it. You can't work for God's not working. And in fact, all you're going to do is do damage. So that's not what it's talking about. I must be getting soft in my old age. Because, oh, I don't know, for the last 10 years, now when I share the gospel with someone, when I come to the cross, I weep. I didn't used to do that. I cannot share the gospel with someone now. Until when I get there, my voice is shaking and I got tears in my eyes and sometimes I have to stop. And I understand what he's talking about here. Because it dawns on me every time afresh just how much Jesus went through to make it possible for this person to go to heaven. And I can't just sit there and say, well, you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You believe that? Great. Pray a prayer and you're going to heaven. No. I'm moved. And it comes out as, do you see how much Jesus loves you? Do you see how far he was willing to go for you? Like it says in Lamentations, does that mean nothing to you? All you who pass by? Pleading as though God were pleading through us. Or do you talk about the cross of Jesus unmoved? Gene Gibson used to have a phrase, I'll never forget it, because I'm guilty of it once in a while, and it's just a chilling phrase. He said, don't be guilty of trafficking in unfelt truth. Do you understand that? Don't be guilty of trafficking in unfelt truth. That is, uh, you're, you're talking to someone about spiritual things, and you don't even know what they mean in your own life. It's unfelt Truth. Trafficking, that's a good word. You know, like commodity. You know, I'm selling something. Don't do that. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. In, in, in essence, you know, we should be saying to someone, like it says in Hebrews, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Huh? You know what the answer to that is? <laughs> we won't. And there's a big word in that, and it applies to so many people. You know what the word is? Neglect. Neglect. You know, uh, most people don't go to hell as born-raising sinners, you know. You know why they go there? Because they're too lazy. They don't care about their own soul enough to get serious about it. Get earnest, as we've been saying. I was like that for 25 years. I heard about Jesus. I heard about God. But you know what? There's always one more thing to do. I don't know why. We always have one more thing to do. I'll get around to God later. You know? Man, I was like that. That was me. Jesus told a chilling story about a guy just like that. This guy was rich. He had a lot of grain. 
And so you think, all right, he's getting old and ready to retire. Now start thinking about God. But Jesus says he had a particularly big crop one year in his old age. And he saw this big crop and he says, and I like the way God describes him because he speaks to his soul. <laughs> this guy has a weird conversation. He says, soul, <laughs> you know. You have much goods laid up for yourself. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger barns. You know, people who have eternal building projects. I, I know people like that. You know, they finish one thing and you think they're finally done. And all of a sudden, uh oh, the family room, I need to redo that one. You know, I want to add on something else. Well, that was this guy going to build bigger barns. You know, listen to this. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said that night. God's going to come knocking and say to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Well, he's not going to have any bigger barns. It's his turn at last to answer to God about his life. And he's not going to be ready. One more thing. Listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, don't be like that. This we're talking about eternity, folks. If you've been putting off and putting off and putting off coming to Jesus and seeking God with your whole heart, look, stop doing it, man. I can tell you right now, there is nothing that's more important in your life than that. You hear that? There is nothing right now. No issue bigger. I don't care what it is. You maybe have a divorce going. You may have a fatal illness. You may have bills to pay. I don't care what it is. That stuff is all minuscule. Compared to the fact that you need to know Jesus Christ and come to God right now. Be earnest. Listen, God basically says in the Bible, look, if you're not serious about coming to me, you're not going to find me. I think people think, you know, God's out there. Oh, please, you know, come on here. I'll do anything. Here I am. I need friends. No. You know what he says in Jeremiah? He says, then you will seek me and you will find me if what? If you search for me with all your heart. All your heart. Going to be a lot of millions of people next week excited about the Super Bowl. Is it going to be the Giants or the, uh, who is it now? What? Patriots. Thank you. You know, and they're going to go nuts. They're going to be excited. They're going to be earnest. Serious. We sit in our house. Sometimes we forget it's Super Bowl Sunday, but we remember when all of a sudden across the street, Yahoo! You know. <laughs> How important is it who wins the Super Bowl next week? Compare it to your own soul, your own need to know Jesus Christ. Where do they sit? Oh, forget it, man. Ain't no comparison. Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. The word in the Greek is agonize. Listen, I want to be careful how I say this. It's not easy to get saved in the sense I'm talking about. It's not going to just drop on you. And if if you're not serious about finding God, you're not going to find him. It takes effort. It takes overcoming that hurdle of acknowledging to God that I'm a worthless sinner. I deserve hell. No excuses. That's not an easy place to get to. And it takes God's help to get there. 
Finally, Hebrews 11, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of people who what? Diligently seek him. Not the guy who says, God, oh, yeah, he's number 13 on my list, my bucket list. Isn't that it? Bucket? Isn't that everybody knows what a bucket list is? Things I need to do before I die, right? <laughs> How about getting your, your soul square with God, you know? That should be numero uno. Okay, back to talking to the believers here. Listen, there's an application for us here, too. And I'm speaking about myself first before I talk to you. And the application is in prayer, being earnest in prayer. You know, this guy puts me to shame. We often quote that verse uh, in James, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Why did God put in the word fervent? He didn't have to, right? If you're praying to God, you're praying to an all-powerful God, why should it be fervent? You know, why doesn't he just say prayer works a lot of good stuff? No, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails, brings about a lot, much. That's a rebuke to me, I'll tell you. I very rarely pray fervently. I'll tell you that right now. Listen, I get encouragement from uh, Romans so often. It says, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that can't be uttered. Do you understand what that's saying? The Holy Spirit, I'm there praying, right? And I don't even know what I should pray. How do I go about this? And here's the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit. That's right, Rick. I'll take care of this. And he's praying with groanings so fervently, they can't even be expressed in human language. Praise God. And I think about my weak prayers. Man, I'm so glad he's perfected them. You know, but it's a challenge to me, too. I'd like to kind of make up the gap a little, you know. It'd be nice. Have a little fervency there anyway, right? <clears throat> be earnest. Okay, well, back to our uh, ambassadors here. They were good ambassadors. Uh, you notice here it said, um, verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly. And then it says, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. These guys are great. Not only are they earnest, they're persuasive. They come up with reasons why Jesus should come and help him. He picked some good ambassadors, didn't he? I love these guys. Um, by the way, uh, there's an application here, too, you know, and that is to be persuasive when we pray. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you, you know, you can't persuade God. Well, I'm thinking of the prayers, for example, of the Saints of the Old Testament, you know, when they prayed. They reasoned with God. Do you know that? They uh, appealed to the way God is. Read the prayers of Abraham or, or Moses or David. They knew God. They didn't just come and say, Lord, bless my mother and bless my father. And, you know. They appealed to God's character. Well, the wonderful thing is here, verse 6, what does it say? The, this, 
This is wonderful. We read this and think, okay, fine. Then Jesus went with them. Do you realize how wonderful that is? As I read this, I, I just thought, man, that really hit me. You know, this is a unique time in the history of the universe. Here is God in the flesh. And only during this very brief time and never again could you go and how should I put it? Fetch him. Jesus, I'd like you to come over to my house and help me. And he comes. Can you imagine that? Huh? Imagine right now going down the street, you know, knowing his address. Jesus, would you come over to my house? I need your help. And he comes. The one who can do anything. This is great. Jesus went with them. And by the way, now he went because he had compassion. He was moved. I'll promise you. As soon as, as soon as he heard the story, he was moved. He was going to go. All right. It wasn't like they twisted his arm. Okay. Well, a guy's a Gentile, but all right. Okay. I'll come. You know, it wasn't like that. Jesus isn't like that. But just think, think about that, that brief period in history where people could go and physically fetch Jesus and bring him and he would come. It's not going to happen in heaven. He's going to be the lamb on the throne. You don't go fetch Jesus. You worship him. You serve him. Okay. How wonderful it would be right now to have him come to us personally, wouldn't it? But wait a minute. What did he say at the end of Matthew? Lo, I am with you. How long? Always. Even to the end of the world. Do you realize right now, I mean, understand what I mean when I say that Jesus is sitting right next to you. You go home, he's right there with you. You don't have to go fetch him. Do you understand the marvelous privilege we have as believers? Jesus is right there with you right now and 24 hours a day, always right now. Man, that's great. Okay, the second uh, quality beyond earnestness is humility. I love this guy's humility. Listen to what he says. Lord, don't trouble yourself. I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I didn't even think myself worthy to come to you. Man. Remember, he he has a real sense of who he is, doesn't he? This guy's a rough soldier. He's heard about this marvelous teacher and healer. What a contrast. And he knows it. And he's a foreigner, an outsider, an invader. And he just has a sense of uh, he and I don't belong together. Kind of like Peter in the boat. You know, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. There's nothing wrong with that. He realizes who he is and he realizes who Jesus is. He is not worthy and Jesus is worthy. It's that simple. Is there an application for us as Christians? Yes, there is. But you say, wait a minute, I'm accepted now. Yeah, that's right. It says that, Ephesians. But what does it say? You are accepted in the beloved one. Your acceptance is not based on who you are. (laughs) It's based on who Jesus is and your relationship with him. In fact, 
find any verse that talks about our being accepted before God right now as believers, every single time God has a phrase like in Christ, because of Christ, in him, always because of our association with Jesus. Why am I stressing this? Well, I'm going to make an application of this again. And again, it's in the area of prayer. We've never taught on this particular subject I'm about to speak on. And so I think it's a good thing to do it. When we pray, why do we say at the end in Jesus' name? If somebody asks you that, could you tell them? Is it important? Do you think it's necessary? Or is it an option? You know, just pray. You know, look, I'm, I'm in Christ, right? Oh, God, blah, blah, blah. I'm done. Why do we say in Jesus' name? Well, let's start off with some scripture. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking. John 14, 15, and 16, all three chapters. Listen to what he says. And whatever you ask in my name that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. John 16, most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until you now you have asked nothing in my name, ask implied in my name. And you will receive that your joy may be full. Did you notice something that was repeated there? Yeah. And it's a command. It's not a recommendation. This is a long time ago because I went through this with a brother. Uh, I was talking to him about it. And he says, well, you know, those verses uh, are only when I ask for something. When I'm praying, if I don't ask for anything, I don't have to use his name. Isn't that crazy? This guy has a little hitch in the get along, as Gene used to say. He's missing something here because he doesn't understand why I need to pray in Jesus name. We're going to talk about that. First of all, let's answer this. This brother's objection. Ephesians 520. Listen carefully. Giving thanks. Always for all things to God, the father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? So there it says when I'm praying and I'm giving thanks that I should do that in the name of Jesus. Also not talking about that. In fact, it's the opposite of asking for something. It's thanking him. You think I could just go up and say, thank you, Jesus. No, he says, if you're going to give thanks, by the way, give thanks for everything. Do that in the name of Jesus, too. You noticing a pattern here? Yeah. <clears throat> it's a, it's the, the idea of, of just praying <clears throat> and leaving Jesus out of it really is based on a poor understanding of Scripture. The reason for bringing up Jesus' name when I pray is not to use it for influence on God. You know, by the way, I know Jesus, you know, I... I know him. You like him. He's your son. No. 
God knows my position in Christ. He already knows that. He wants me to verbally declare, since I'm speaking already, isn't it interesting, by the way, praying, you're speaking. Okay? So I'm already speaking. So add, when you're finished speaking, these further words, in Jesus' name or something like that. Because I am declaring verbally the basis for speaking directly to him in the first place. I'm reminding myself, God knows it, but he wants me to have a recognition. It's a clear declaration of my own unworthiness to come to God on my own. And it's a clear declaration that only on the basis of who Jesus is and what he's done can I even talk to God in the first place. Do you understand? That's why it's there. To omit his name, listen, when I hear somebody pray and they leave off the name, to omit his name is to stand on your own merits. You willing to do that? Oh, God, here I am. You know, I'm a great guy. Yeah, I know I'm in Jesus, but I don't need his name. now. I'm just coming here on my own. Uh -uh. The classic example um, of the attitude underlying these two ways of praying, the, the broken recognition of unworthiness in Christ's infinite worth versus the, uh, well, I don't need to mention Jesus. It's kind of an offhand approach, you know. It's illustrated by the, the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray. <clears throat> and Jesus, man, <clears throat> he does so much with so few words, you know. Jesus does whenever he talks. Every word in his description of that scene is just pregnant with meaning. When he talks about the Pharisee, he says, Pharisee lifted up his eyes to heaven. He has no problem looking up at God, you know, his friend and maybe his equal. You know, oh, God, I it's a prayer of thanksgiving. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Isn't that good? And he goes on to list all these wonderful things that he does to impress God. And God had better be impressed. You know, pride, you see, you don't come to God like that. You don't talk to God like that. But uh, this, of course, he's always uh, the guy Jesus picks as a tax collector, the most despised sinner in the midst of the Jews, right? Says he wouldn't even so much as lift up his eyes. He's over in the corner by himself and he's looking down. And he just says this, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Beat his breast. Well, I wonder if there's a difference between the two. We don't have to wonder. Jesus told us. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, this man went down to his house justified. The sinner, you see. He came with a humble attitude. What does it say in James? God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Okay, I'm going to take on the gainsayers because we'll have somebody say, but wait a minute. Hebrews 10 says we're supposed to approach the throne of grace boldly. Amen. Boldly uh, does not mean impertinence. Those are two different things. And in fact, where he says we're to approach boldly, he says <clears throat> through the blood of Christ. Reminds us again. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> part of it is, I don't think a lot of us appreciate just what an incredible privilege it is to be able to talk directly to God. You know, a, a, Jew, from, a Jew from the Old Testament, he would probably have a heart attack if he saw you speaking directly to God the way you do, brother and sister. Do you know that? <clears throat> 
Uh, I don't know if they've ever confirmed it, but uh, there is a tradition among the Jews that, uh, first of all, you know, they didn't go around just arbitrarily entering God's presence. There was one guy who went into the symbolic presence of God inside the tabernacle. You know the outline, right? You have the outer room and then you have the back room, the inner inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies. That represented the presence of God in there, right? Do you know how many people went in there? One. Do you know how often he did it? Once a year. Once a year. And it says, and that not without blood. Look, this guy, he had to prepare. Can you imagine every time we had to pray? He had to go prepare a sacrifice in a special way and do it right. And then he had to bring the blood in with him. He had to be sprinkled with blood. The mercy seat had to be sprinkled with blood. Blood everywhere. Do you understand? <clears throat> and then he could go in. And here's the tradition. I said, they, I, it sounds right, but I'm not going to say it definitely was true. But apparently there was tradition that when the high priest went in there, people were so terrified by the presence of God. Remember when the mountain trembled and the smoke came up like a furnace? They were so terrified that when the high priest uh, went in there, they talked to themselves and said, wait a minute, what happens if he dies in there? Who's going to get him? And so apparently they tied a rope around his ankle. Yeah. So if any happened, anything happened to this guy in the presence of God, you know, I'm not going in there. I'm not qualified. No, really. Now, listen, has God changed? No, God's exactly the same. And yet, here we are in Christ. We can go. Thank you, Tom. Straight, straight into the Holy of Holies and and speak to him. Is that a privilege or what? Huh? Man, infinite privilege. Okay. So, listen, if you're in this boat and, you, and uh, maybe you've kind, of, you've kind of lost the sense of just what it really means to pray to God. If it seems, you know, I don't know, maybe I think sometimes people think it's kind of, it's, it's a ritual, you know, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, you know. And, and they lose the sense of what they're doing. Let me tell you, <clears throat> I was saved in 1972. I don't know how many times I've prayed since then, but I can tell you this. Every single time I've prayed, whether alone or in a group, I have always said something like, in the name of Jesus. Every single time. And you're not going to find a witness that can prove otherwise. And let me also say that every time I've said those words, I have understood the sense of what they mean. It's not, I'm going through motions. I understand what I'm saying. What I'm saying to God is, Lord, I'm speaking to you only on the basis of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. Thank you so much that I can even talk to you. It's all because of Jesus. But now if you've lost the sense of that, then let me say, you need to ask God to restore to you a sense of this priceless privilege. Okay? And when you ask him, make sure you ask it in Jesus' name. Okay, the last uh, quality of this fellow, of course, it, of course, is the one that Jesus talked about, and that is his faith, his great faith. Coming, coming to God with great faith. 
And again, let's think about the situation. Look, how strong do you think the desire was for the centurion to have Jesus come to his house where Jesus could be there? He could see Jesus. Jesus could see the servant, look at the symptoms, diagnose the problem like a doctor, right? You know, maybe discuss it. You know, the centurion said, well, Lord, you know, listen, you know, uh, it's been four days and he's had this symptom and he's had that. We like to do that, right? Kind of help the doctor out a little, you know. No, really, don't you think he would have much rather have had Jesus there? And then Jesus literally touched the servant, you know, and say, be healed or something. Yeah. So this is an incredible leap of faith. For him to say to Jesus, who's out there somewhere, he's at his own where I don't know where Jesus is now. Maybe he's in the outskirts of Capernaum or something. And he sends and says, Lord, you don't have to come any further. Just say the word from wherever you are out there somewhere. And now picture he's seeing Jesus out there. Jesus is not at the house. He he's not. He does. Uh, I have to be careful. Here. I was going to say Jesus doesn't know what this guy's house looks like. Well, of course he does. He hasn't met the servant. He has no idea, quote unquote, you know, what the problem is. I'll tell you, this centurion is trusting a lot. You know, Jesus doesn't have his iPad or iPod to go on to Google Maps, you know, and zoom in on this guy's house or bring up Facebook and at least see what the servant looks like. Right. Or maybe some prayer requests there along with it. What faith, Lord, wherever you are right now, just say the word. And it'll be it. That's that is incredible. No wonder Jesus marveled, huh? That's wonderful. You know why it's wonderful? Because it's one of the few times that somebody actually recognizes who Jesus is and what he can do. Doesn't happen very often. Just by speaking the word. You know, that's the ultimate uh, power that uh, you always see portrayed, you know, like in science fiction movies or something. Somebody just speaking and it happens. You know, that's science fiction. There's only one that can do that. It's God. And I want you to think about that, just how great God is. Speak the word. Listen, it says this about him. Listen carefully in, in Romans. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. (laughs) You caught that? God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Think of creation. The first command, it says, let there be light. He didn't go and get a bunch of photons and roll them up in a big mass, you know, and whoo, fling them out. Light didn't exist. Nobody knew what light was. There wasn't anybody to know what light was except the angels. He had an idea, this infinite God, what light is. And he said, let it be. <laughs> and it existed. Okay, it didn't exist. But when he spoke... It couldn't help but come into being. Is our God great or what? You understand that? He speaks. And inanimate nature, I don't care what it is, cannot help 
but do his bidding. And this infinite, well, we think infinite universe is really big anyway, with all the galaxies and the stars and the globular clusters and the open clusters and the planets and nebulae and all the other incredible stuff that's in it. That you remember, I preached a sermon several years ago, just taking a trip from the sun to Mars. Any of you remember that? We got out to Mars and our, our heads were swimming. We're, we're just right next to one little tiny star called our sun and already we're going, whoa. And God spoke. And that stuff just came. Okay. Uh, there's a wonderful verse in uh, 2 Corinthians. It says, it is God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shone into our hearts. Isn't that wonderful? This same God who spoke, it says he commanded the light. The, the light wasn't there at the moment to respond because it didn't exist, by the way. Because his command was to exist. <laughs> and so this light that didn't exist came into being. And that verse says, that same, that's that same God shown in our hearts to reveal the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's the same one. That, that's the same God who, when we pray, that's his presence, the presence we come into, him. And listen, um, about creation now. People think that God created all this stuff and uh, now it's kind of running on its own. You know, there are these things called laws. I have a degree in physics, and there are a lot of laws in physics. They're in the form of equations, describing just about everything, okay? And we call them laws because things have to behave that way. And there have been some scientists, the, the guys that are the cream of the crop, starting with Einstein, who, uh, as they begin to think about how the whole universe operates and all these laws, they realized that... Everything physically, when, it, when you talk about these laws, boils down to just four things. They're called forces or actually fields. Look, one of them, I don't want to drop my Bible. I'll drop a hymnal. This is one of the forces. You familiar with that? Yeah, you, what, was, what was that force? Gravity. That's exactly right. That's one of the four. If we had a, a couple of magnets up here, you'd see the other one. Electricity and magnetism. It's called the electromagnetic force. Okay? There are two others down in the nuclei of atoms, the weak and the strong force. That's it. And when you get right down to it, everything, behavior-wise, as far as uh, how things are, come from those four forces. And Einstein wanted so badly to be able to bring all those four ideas together into one. He called it the unified field theory, and he died trying because he, could, he couldn't do it. But since that time, and beginning with him, the scientists have so much wanted to reduce everything to one basic truth or principle. You know where I'm going on this? I'll tell you, the scripture is such a remarkable book because of the way God phrases it in 60 AD. It said, and it's so simple. And yet it addresses that very issue. What it basically says is, if you want to come down to that one common thing that's, that's causing the force of everything to hold together, to consist, 
to be maintained. Colossians 1. In Him, that is Jesus, all things consist or literally hold together. Isn't that cool? There it is. Jesus. And what the verse is saying is, look, He didn't just turn the universe loose and install all these laws and now things are rotating and orbiting and coming together and going apart because of these laws. No. Jesus, listen, is maintaining everything, every atom, you, me, the air around us, everything, moment by moment. Is he great or what? So he didn't just simply speak and everything came into being. Moment by moment, he's keeping it going. What does it say in Hebrews 1? Upholding all things by the word of his power. Okay? Look, the point of all this is we have a great God. Okay? So, don't be bashful to ask great things of him. Listen, uh, you may be having some tough times. You may be having some big problems. Let me say something. First of all, don't, don't raise your hand, but this is a rhetorical question. Just think about it. I wonder how many people here would like to see God do great things in their life. Everybody, right? Well, listen. Great works of God can only happen when there are great difficulties to overcome. Do you understand that? God can only do great things if there are great difficulties or obstacles to overcome. If it's easy or if it can be done naturally or by me, that's not a great work of God. I can do it. And and he'll do those things for us. And, and you know, we'll often just ask for things like that. He wants to do great things. And he can. So we have before us here a guy who believed that. If you think about it, by the way, he had to believe that Jesus is God. Only God can do that. Speak at a distance and heal someone like that. So, and I'm speaking to myself again. Why is it that we, in light of all this, why do we keep taking matters into our own hands? (laughs) You know why? Look, I'll be honest. You won't have to say it. I'll say it. We don't trust him. That's it. We don't trust his motives. We don't trust his purposes. I know better than he does. I doubt his wisdom about the whole thing. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) He knows the end from the beginning. Sometimes we doubt his ability. That's incredible. And so one wonders, you know, how many great things God has not done because I didn't believe it. What did it say about... uh, his, his own uh, hometown and his, and his own province, says, now he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Notice it doesn't say because Jesus wasn't capable, just simply because of their unbelief. Okay, well, we're, we're uh, out of time here. Let me just say, may we as a body of believers stand out for Christ, you know. May we be marked by our earnestness in the things of God. A deep sense of humility before him, coupled with a genuine appreciation of his worthiness. And an expectation of his doing great things in our midst for his glory. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful example of this centurion. It really speaks to our hearts. It speaks to my heart. And Lord, we do pray that you deliver us from ho-hum Christianity. Lord, we long to see you being, uh, doing great things, not just in our lives individually, but as a body as well. We know that the days have got to be short. We've only got a few left before Jesus comes. And so, Lord, may we redeem the time. Make these days count. Not that we might appear to be such great people, but that you might be glorified in us and through us. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.